I'm gonna be real talk here for a second, um, to the white people listening, like your money, your wealth privilege isn't yours. It is built off of the enslavement of black people and the theft of indigenous land. You would not have the wealth privilege you currently have had your you, your ancestors, your ancestors, ancestors not partaken and perpetuated in the system and you all have. Unless you have actively railed against it, then you have benefited from it. So the wealth privilege you have isn't yours. So it's actually your obligation to be redistributing, period. I'm Alison Rice, and welcome to Offline, the podcast. These are honest conversations about true self with the people behind the Instagram accounts and the teachers who help us on our way. A lot has changed since I launched Offline in 2018. It started as a podcast, and thanks to your ongoing support, it's turned into a bit of a movement. Today, Offline exists to help us explore the essence of who we are, our true self, and how to live, create, and succeed from that place. If you need help making contact with your unique purpose, or maybe you're ready for a conscious career change and need some advice, I encourage you to explore my online learning opportunities at getoffline.co forward slash study. You can also follow getoffline.co on Instagram and me, I'm Alison Larson Rice. I hope this episode helps you on your way. Thank you for being here. Okay, we're starting season six as we intend to finish by listening, learning, healing, and then moving into informed, intentional action. It was a true honour to interview racial justice educator, attorney, grief coach, healer and author Rachel Ricketts about acting in allyship to Black Indigenous people of colour and what doing the work actually looks like for those of us white people who hold the most power and privilege. In this episode, Rachel educates that we all rise when white people undertake the work of racial justice, but also that when we truly do this work, everything in our lives will change, and we must be prepared to lose things, like our friends, money, our time, and even our identity. If we're not prepared for this, then we're not committed to racial justice. But... There's more to gain than there is to lose. Rachel's new book, Do Better, Spiritual Activism for Fighting and Healing from White Supremacy, is directed at white people, but is for black indigenous people of color. She discusses what that means in this episode, but a sneak peek, white people can't be allies, but they can act in allyship. She also shares that white people must have a tolerance for fucking up because they, or shall I say we, I, will. The need to be right cannot supersede the commitment to racial justice, and that a white person's fear and discomfort isn't life-threatening, but being a black indigenous person of color is. We know that people are dying because white people aren't doing this work. If, like I did, you committed to it in 2020, I hope Rachel's lived wisdom and education not encourages you, but demands of you that you stay accountable. Her book is available to pre-order now and hits shelves on February 2, 2021. Buy it. Rachel, thank you for your education, time, energy and labour. And to my offline angels, I hope you adore and grow from this season. Okay, here's the wonderful Rachel and I for Offline. And P.S., just a note from me, I've left this episode completely unedited. Did you have any questions for me before we start? 
No questions. If it's okay with you before we hit record, I just would love for us to take a quick moment and a deep breath. Um, So just, yeah, inviting us into the space that we're in physically and um, acknowledging the lens that we work and play and podcast on (laughs) Um, and the giving gratitude for being able to come together virtually in this way to have this conversation and also acknowledging that this can be a challenging conversation um, given the topic for each of us in various ways and so just bringing that to the table and being conscientious to be kind and compassionate with one another as we move through this discussion thank you yeah thank you um I appreciate that I will be really honest with you and say that I don't believe I have prepared as much for any guest as I have for you. <laughs> Thank <laughs> and, you. <laughs> um, and yeah, I go into this knowing that um, I'm not going to get it right and that I hope it acts as an example for my what is a predominantly white listenership mm-hmm. um, to expose myself in a way that shows that, you know, we're all still learning and I'm not by any means exempt from that. So so I thank you for that intro because it actually brings me a bit of peace. <laughs> I've been really nervous. Cool. Oh, okay. Yeah, they've been um, <coughs> my full disclosure to you is I've already endured a bunch of harm in my interviews. So I'm like, this is my grounding intention. Um, yeah. To create more safety for myself as well. Um, but I really appreciated your request. Um, oh, so I, I, I have faith we're going to have a lovely conversation. Me too. Okay. Well, let's kick off. Cool. Um, You're a leading voice for our generation and you've built such a valuable and honest offering. And I'm always fascinated to know, did it happen quite organically or did you see a need and then build a racial justice education into that offering, uh, into that need? Mm. Um, I always say this work was really born from like began before I was um, birthed into this earthly plane. Um, And it's a product of all of the personal and professional experiences I've had, mostly the traumatic personal and professional experiences I've had. And so the deep need really um, is, is, is deeply personal and one that I felt strongly that if I have this deep need for this work to be done, if I feel um, this overwhelming sense of injustice and the ways in which I'm witnessing it, not only in my own life, but around me, um, then I can't be alone. Like when we have a deep um, feeling or sensation or desire about something, you know, there's how many people, human beings on the planet, like w- very rarely are we the only people who are feeling that way. Um, And I do this work from a a deep calling to help create a planet um, where folks don't have to endure the kinds of personal and professional traumatic experiences that I endured, especially not Black Black and Indigenous folks, very specifically not um, Black girls and femmes. Um, So it is a both end, I guess, to answer your question. It was a deep need that I felt um, and saw around me in my in my experiences. And I think also as a collective, really as someone who is a spiritual person, as someone who's highly sensitive and empathic and dialed into the collective, it felt um, and continues to feel like why part of why we're here. Um, and so uh, I believe sincerely that we have an opportunity to create change in a way we haven't before we've had many, many, many opportunities over the centuries. Um, but I do believe that given the the specific moment that we're in, right. And this work is not a moment, it's a movement, but the specifics of, um, this moment that we're in with the technology that we have with a global pandemic, um, with the most recent iteration of black uprising in America and around the world, I think we have the opportunity to actually create, um, effective and lasting and sustainable change, whether that actually happens or not, you know, is yet to be seen. But I do believe we have the ingredients um, in order to be able to do so now. Mm. Have you ever felt more hopeful than now? Like, are you hopeful now? Is that the overwhelming feeling? 
Um, it's not overwhelming. It, it's fleeting. <laughs> um, because again, I'm not saying anything new. I'm not saying, I don't believe any racial justice activist who's on this planet at this time is really saying anything new. Our ancestors have been saying the same shit for centuries. Um, and that's really hard for our human minds to fathom how long this problem has been ongoing, how pervasive it is, how global it is. Um, you know, I'm in Canada and and the conversation often centers around America, but this is a global problem. I've lived in various places around the world and, you know, anti-Blackness, white supremacy, injustice is rampant everywhere. Mm. Um, I stay hopeful because I couldn't do the work that I do if I didn't. Do I believe I'm going to see a sufficient shift in my lifetime? No, um, but I'd like to leave a better world behind. Mm. Well, I want to thank you for your work and energy and and labor and education because honestly I, I've learned so much um, and a lot of what you give us and I'm going to point listeners to where they can um, support and fund your work a lot of what you give us is free as well on Instagram and yeah <laughs> and platforms like that so um so I want to say thank you I appreciate um, that you've recently written a book called Do Better Spiritual Activism for Fighting and Healing from White Supremacy what I've, I've got mine on pre-order. What I've read from um, some of the descriptors is that you ask readers to take action with their own healing while reading. Mm-hmm. Um, what can, t- Talk to us about what we can expect in the book. Yeah. Um, so this book is really sort of, I guess, my personal manifesto, my personal and professional manifesto. I didn't want to write a how-to Mm. Um, because I just believe that that's part of perpetuating the same systems of like white supremacist, capitalist, heteropatriarchy, like that I'm somehow um, better or more evolved than others. That being said, a lot of folks will say, Rachel, this is how to, <laughs> um, in some senses, but it is a mixture of, you know, my, ex- it's really a reflection and an embodied encapsulation of my experiences. So there's a lot of personal story. That's really what I wanted the book to be rooted in because I really think that as humans, that's how we learn. Um, We learn from witnessing one another um, as humans. So um, one of the key elements of the book is that it's written to white women, but it is for Black, Indigenous, and people of color, specifically Black Black and Indigenous women and femmes. And in order, that's a really like nuanced line to to hold. <laughs> um, and so in order for me to do that, I needed to create a book that could speak to everybody. And that's, I think, one of the, the um, pieces of my work that I excel at and do quite well is being able to hold space for everyone um, because racial justice requires work from everyone, albeit it looks very different depending on who you are and the power and privilege that you possess. So it's very much rooted in my personal story. Um, uh, A lot of my personal story of growing up, I grew up in a very white and wealthy um, part of Canada. I was the only black person for miles, um, oftentimes the only black indigenous or person of color, let alone the only black person. Um, Not only did I grow up in a white area, but it was wealthy. So we're talking about people who have like the most power and privilege. Um, And it was just highly traumatic. Um, And so I really basically rip my heart out, put it on the page to glean the experiences that I felt folks could most learn from and identify with. So to the white folks who read it, it's a blessing and an offering and an invitation for you to be able to read and witness the um, the heartache of the consequences of white supremacy. And for the Black, Indigenous, and people of color who read it, my deep hope is that they feel affirmed and acknowledged um, and that they're not alone because most of my life I felt very much alone uh, because I was oppressed and ostracized and othered. Um, and each chapter includes a soul care offering and a call to action. So this work is healing work, like I said, for everybody. It's it's trauma work for everybody. It's grief work for everybody. Um, and I, I firmly believe in all the work that I do that this work is work that needs to be done from the inside out if we actually want to create Um, the type of collective change that is needed at this time. Again, that's from a divinely feminine um, way of being that unplugs from the the status quo systems of white supremacist, heteropatriarchal, ableist, 
capitalist, transphobic, homophobic ways of being. Um, so it's not a neck up exercise. It requires us to really um, process, acknowledge, um, dive deep into our own emotions, our own trauma, um, ways we have caused harm, ways we have been harmed, um, and what we're going to do to mitigate that harm moving forward and create a more equitable society for all. So each chapter has a very specific topic, mostly rooted in my own personal experience. And then at the end, there's a soul care offering to reflect on the topic at hand and really get the reader to engage in this work. Because there's no way any of us can read a book um, and be changed. And yes, there are like a million phenomenal books. I'm a huge avid book reader and there are books that really move us deeply, but it's just so easy to put that book down and weeks later go back to the way that we were. That's just kind of the human condition. And so this is an invitation and an offering for this work to really be embodied within us and to create um, actionable items for us to move on past the book. So the book the work that you do within the book doesn't just end when you finish the book. It continues on because that's what's required for actual change. Mm -hmm. Is moving into action. I will say um, I took your um, webinar, the 101, the first one, and you're so right in that that work happened in my body. Mm. It was extremely confronting. I felt <laughs> physically uncomfortable. I felt a bit sick. Yeah, yeah. I hear um, that a lot. Yeah, it's um, not something I expected. So I guess going into reading the book, it's, yeah, I mean, that's what we we can expect to feel. You said that it's um, directed, and you've said this about your work as a whole, that it's directed at white women, but it's for women of colour uh, or people of colour. Can you explain what that actually means? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, I am direct, when I first... I'll talk about it in context of the book, but this translates mm -hmm. to my work in general. When I first was, you know, really figuring out what the book was going to look like, it was the first question I had is like, who's the audience? And that was really hard for me. I was like, I don't want to write to white folks because every book is written to white folks because um, everything yeah, is like, don't made with white folks and white comfort in mind. That's just the status quo. That's just how the world operates. Um, that's white supremacy. That's how, like, you know, that's a, a direct um, and explicit offshoot of white supremacy. It's like, we hold whiteness to be supreme. That is white supremacy. And by holding whiteness to be supreme, we operate in a way that always postulates whiteness first and foremost, and sometimes exclusively, irrespective of your race or ethnicity. So I didn't want to write a book to white people because I'm like, all books are into white people. <laughs> I won't say all, most. Um, um, and, but when I got down to the root of it, it was like, well, who is this work for? Like what, 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 what work needs to be done and who needs to do it in order to create an equitable society for black, indigenous and people of color. And the answer was overwhelmingly white people. And in my personal experience, very specifically white women, um, quite pointedly cis white women. So mm -hmm. I needed to write the book to them because no one has caused me more harm in my life personally and professionally than white women. And a lot of black women and femmes have that exact same answer and experience. So, um, so that was very clear. It needed to be to white women because that's who needs to do the work the most. That's who needs this healing, this acknowledgement, this like, um, when you talk about having felt sick, I hear that a lot again, only from white women, usually cis white women, because mm -hmm. the, the status quo that we live in, the status quo oppress oppressive systems that we live in often result in cis white women not not doing any of this internal work at all. Um, and so it's a total shock to the system when, when it gets done. Mm. Um, and so that's why it needed to be written to white women, but it's for Black, Indigenous, and people of color, as I mentioned very specifically, um, and most pointedly Black women and femmes, because um, we are the ones who face the most oppression and the most harm. Um, so we are the ones who need the most, we need the world to shift the most in order for us to um, be able to move through the world in an equitable way, to be to be free, to have liberation. Um, and when we are liberated, then everyone is liberated. It's like um, when we can run, as a collective, we only run as fast as the slowest runner. Mm. Um, and they're not, you know, to be clear, we're not like, in, I'm not 
saying that we independently run slower, decide to run slower, that we're, but there's obstacles in our way that have been put in our way institutionally and systemically. And so we need to take, take root of that um, and acknowledge it and understand the meaning of, of community and collective care. Um, we're seeing that now in these pandemic times more than ever, right? Like that we can't all thrive unless all of us have the ability to thrive. One person on this planet that remains subject to COVID means we're all still at risk. That's always mm. been the case. That's always been true. Um, but it's been really easy to look away from, especially for those who have the most power and privilege. So written to white women because they have the most work to do, but it's for Black, Indigenous, and people of color because we have been oppressed and ostracized and othered. We have been lynched. We have been hung from trees. We have been raped. We have been murdered. We've had our land stolen from us. We've had our livelihoods taken. Um, we are harmed every single day and we deserve to be free from that. We deserve to be liberated. We deserve to have equity. Um, and that's not going to happen until the people who have the most power and privilege do their work. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Um, I guess a bit more of a personal question. Offline exists as an exploration of true self. Who are we without the labels and the social followings and all of that? I wondered, is there any distance between how you are on social media and perhaps how you present yourself on social media versus how you are in the world in your real life? Mm. <laughs> My short answer is no. <laughs> yes. Um, I kind of thought you might say that. And, uh, <laughs> and I think that's probably not very true for a lot of people. I just am wholeheartedly myself all the time. One of the things that, um, or I try to be, one of the things that my friends who have read the book thus far have said to me is like, oh, it just it just sounds like you're talking to me. It just, mm. you know, when I read it, it's just so you, it's so your voice. It's just like, it's just, I love it. I just feel like I'm in a conversation with you. Um, and so that's my Instagram, like all of my copy I write and, um, or most of it, I should say. And it's just me talking. It's, that's how I am. And, um, there's nothing that I really feel that I hide. I, feel, I find it very odd sometimes when I, when I come across folks or like I'm in interviews with people and they're like, I follow you on Instagram. And then they like ask me some super untoward question. And I'm like, how have you followed me on Instagram? And you don't understand that that would be like a totally offside question to ask or like, you know, cause I'm so me. So I've made it pretty clear. I've really put yeah. it out there. And to be honest, part of that is actually um, a form of safety and protection for myself so that it's clear um, who I am there's a space that exists that um, puts out to the world exactly who I am and what I'm about in advance. Because as a queer, black, multiracial woman, a lot of times I come across folks who are not engaged in this work, who are not um, engaged in dismantling systems of oppression and very much perpetuating them because that's unfortunately kind of the binary. I don't really believe in binaries, but on this one, if you're not acknowledging that and working to address it and mitigate it, mitigating it, then you're just perpetuating the harm that is status mm. quo. Um, so the, to have the Instagram page where I am totally and completely myself and say all the shit that I want to say in the way that I want to say it, I'm like prefacing myself, if that makes sense, yeah. um, as a means to safeguard. So when I say yes to like interviews, I'm like, I hope if you've seen me on Instagram, then you know what I'm about. Cause that's, mm -hmm. that's who I am. This work is work, but it's also, um, my purpose and it's also my life in addition to being my livelihood. So it's very, very, very much rooted in who I am. Um, and I think it's so vital that that is done authentically, like authenticity and integrity are two of my core values. So it, it permeates every single thing that I do. And I think it would be hypocritical of me to call in people to do this work, um, which really is a returning to yourself, a lot of this work, um, mm. if I wasn't doing that myself. Mm. That's a beautiful answer. And I kind of knew you were going to be like, nope, that's <laughs> me all the time. <laughs> um, you've shown me what righteous anger looks like, um, which I know can be very polarizing for the fragile. I know you've experienced that yourself on platforms like Instagram. Yeah. You've said before that one of the things you've been challenged with is the need to prove your humanity to people. Mm -hmm. And I wondered how you claim boundaries for yourself sort of now and today, is that, when I read that, is that retrospective or is that still a current 
feeling of yours? Unfortunately, it's a current feeling. I would love to say that um, there is some sort of like deep inner work that I've done to be able to move beyond that. And um, there isn't because that's that's unfortunately just a product of living in the status quo systems of oppression with which we all reside. But I can say the work I've been able to do around it is to be more embodied and more boundaried about it. Um, that has also come with you know, additions in power and privilege that allow me to do so. Um, so I have to acknowledge that as well. But, you know, when people, um, when people, I was in a conversation recently with a white woman and she basically not all white people me. And it's like, when those moments happen, you're not, to me, that's a, that's, um, not acknowledging my humanity mm-hmm. or my ex- existence or experience. So it is, um, and, and, and to me, that's what anti-blackness, I mean, that's what white supremacy is, but very specifically also that's what anti-blackness is when we're operating from an anti-black space. And again, oftentimes this is subconscious, um, but it doesn't make it any less violent or, or the impact any less harmful. Um, when things occur that are anti-black, that is, um, a product of not seeing black people as humans, which we have all been conditioned to do in Mm. the systems of oppression that we live in. So especially as a queer, Black, multiracial woman, um, I am invalidated frequently because I'm a Black woman and I speak out against these systems. And so I'm constantly made to feel wrong and I'm constantly um, demonized. I'm constantly labeled angry. I am constantly seen as a Black woman before Rachel. I talk about this Mm. in the book. Like one of the many privileges that white women possess is they walk into, I mean, well, I'll say this and and caveat it, but... um, for the white women who have, who have sufficient power and privilege, which is many, to walk into a room and be who they are. Like, you know, like be Sandra or Ellen or whoever the fuck that. they are yeah. before being like, oh, there's a white woman who walked in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and my caveat is, of course, many white women exist at various intersections of identity. So if you're disabled or trans um, or poor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, there's other stuff going on there as well. But as a black woman, we're just talking about race. As a black woman, my blackness and my gender identity precede me very Mm. rarely do I get to walk into a space and just be Rachel first like oh who's this person all of the stereotypes that folks have about blackness and about womanhood and about black womanhood enter into the room before I do enter into your thought process about me before knowing me and that is invalidating my humanness and that Mm. is the status quo so you exist as the labels in a way yeah I exist as the the stereotypes that folks have about me. And what's really challenging is that so many folks have these stereotypes and they aren't aware that they have them. So you're fighting with, and this is so true in um, the Canadian context and um, what I understand of the Australian context as well. Because again, mm-hmm. we compare ourselves to America and we're like, we're not like that. We don't do that outward awful things. We don't have white people storming the Capitol in the name of white supremacy. And I would say that doesn't make your... Um, actions or your community any less um, racist at all um, because it's this subconscious constant invalidation and labeling and othering and um, ostracizing that constantly happens that uh, you're not even aware of that's that that's the premise of my book if you're not even aware of the harm that you're causing, how will you ever rectify it? If you have no capacity to withstand your own emotions and your own trauma and have an understanding of what's going on inside you, you're never going to be able to fulsomely embody the work that is required to overturn it individually and then certainly not collectively because if we have a whole collective of people who are out there trying to create change but they're not embodying the work and seeing the ways in which they're perpetuating that harm they're just going to continue to perpetuate harm even when you very intentionally and explicitly set out to do otherwise. Mm. When the Black Lives Matter movement really kicked off in May or June last year, it was really interesting to see the, I guess I'll say the influencer set on Instagram in Australia Mm. really rally against what was going on in the States. And it was very polarizing because if you live in this country, you understand how much work we've got to do and how (laughs) disgusting it is that we live on land that was never ceded. We are the only country in the world that doesn't have a treaty with its First Nations people. Mm. We still have a government that celebrates the day 
every day, every year, January 26, that celebrates the day this country was invaded and calls it Australia Day. (laughs) So it was actually really, yeah, kind of confronting to see that when it's happening in the States, all of a sudden we find a voice. But when it comes to actually our own people, um, and that's, you know, changed a tiny bit, um, (laughs) but but not enough. Um, I wondered what advice you have for other black Indigenous people of colour when it comes to the internalisation of the gaslighting and bypassing. Mm -hmm. How do you, I guess, actively stop yourself from letting that emotional violence in or can you not? Yeah. Um, That was uh, another main premise for the book is not, right, It's, it's to support the healing and the work for everyone. And so for me, the, the healing work that Black, Indigenous, and people of color have to do, specifically Black and Indigenous folks folks who face not only racism and white supremacy, but anti-Blackness and anti-Indigeneity from all races, including our own, um, is unearthing our internalized oppression, the ways in which we have internalized these systems of domination and oppression, cause, causing ourselves harm and also each other, right? So white supremacy exists in rooms without white people in the same way that patriarchy exists in room without men or masculine folks, mm-hmm. um, because we internalize it and we, we perpetuate it. So we see this in terms of like colorism, you know, like one of my privileges is I'm a light-skinned black woman. Um, and, um, and with fighting across um, non-white racial groups instead of focusing on the real problem, which is like who, who created these systems, which I talk about in the book, who created these systems, who's benefiting, who has the most power and privilege here, really. Um, so that work is, is deep and deeply painful. This is deeply challenging work for everyone, irrespective of who you are, which is, I have a bit of compassion for that. Cause so I understand why people maybe don't want to do it because <laughs> mm-hmm. like facing yourself is the hardest shit you'll ever do in your entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also the most rewarding. Um, but the work for black indigenous and people of color is, is that it's, it's, it's acknowledging the systems that currently exist that are causing us harm, which again is deeply painful because when we feel like it's us personally, right, which is how gaslighting works, like we're just constantly made to feel by our dominators and oppressors that it's our own personal problem. Mm. But when you feel that way, you feel like you at least have some control over changing it because you're like, oh, okay, I just need to do better. I need to pull myself up by the bootstraps or I need to X, Y, Z, earn more money, get a better education, live the capitalist dream, and then I'll be free from these shackles. And that's just not true. Like it doesn't matter who you are, you are subject to these systems. I mean, um, we know, for example, in the United States and in the UK, the statistics show that Black women's maternal death rate is on average, I think in the United States, three times higher than white women, irrespective of education level or class. And Serena Williams wrote a whole article on this. Serena fucking Williams Mm. almost died in childbirth. It doesn't Mm. matter. You can't earn your way out of it. You can't achieve your way out of these systems of oppression. Of course, that allows you some additional power and privilege that can buffer you from it, but um, you're still a black person, right? You're still not fully human because not enough people are doing their work to address this harm and to mitigate it and and, um, dismantle it. So our work is really uh, allowing ourselves the time and space to acknowledge the systems as they currently exist and have an understanding that these are systems that are causing us harm. They're not, that's not individual shortcomings. Mm-hmm. Um, and then doing our work to, to, to unearth what have we ingested um, as like fact um, for ourselves that is really just systems of oppression um, stories and perspectives thrust upon us by those who have the most power and privilege to ensure that they retain and maintain power and privilege to the detriment and exclusion of all Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And our healing work is really um, about our own liberation. So one of the top things that I say for Black, Indigenous, and people of color to do um, as we move through this work, and this is like a moving target, it is for me, for sure, and I've been doing this work for years, is to learn how to prioritize our comfort above white comfort. And that Mm. goes against everything we've ever been taught. It's incredibly uncomfortable our parents most of us our parents will will be like don't do that you'll you'll be you'll be murdered you know like Mm. that it's like that visceral in their bodies like you just do whatever you're told you have to just be the best that you can possibly be because this world is up to get you um and that's what has to be done and um 
we have to reimagine all of these systems and have a fulsome understanding of, of how they're really rigged and stacked against um, anyone who doesn't have the most power and privilege. Um, and that requires deep, deep healing work. Um, and it requires us um, rooting into our ancestry and also um, really uptaking in our communal care, which is another thing I talk about in the book quite a bit, revillaging all of us. Um, and again, we're seeing this more with COVID, like the ways in which we need to care for, for each other. Um, individualism is a lie. Um, we don't get by on our own. We literally can't survive on our own as humans. We need others. So, um, yeah, all of mm. that is required. Um, thank you for that. As a white woman, you don't believe, and I agree with you, that I can be an ally, but that I can act in allyship. I have to tell you that was a enormous moment of clarity for me. Mm. So I thank you for that. Um, can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah. Um, I don't believe that white folks, when it comes to racial justice, can be, I'll just say across the board, any like anti-oppressive discussion or lens that we're talking about, I don't believe that anyone can be an ally because you don't occupy, um, like an ally is not an identity that you occupy all the time. Like I am black. I am always black. There's nothing about my blackness I can take off even if I want to. Mm. Um, I'm always black in every space. I'm black in my sleep. I am black when I wake up. I am black everywhere that I go. But an ally, it's a choice you make every second of every day. And you will ultimately, without fail, at some point, shit the bed on that choice. You will fuck mm. it up. You will choose incorrectly. You will not be an ally in a moment. So to be an ally feels way too weighty for something that isn't constant. Um, A. B. Um, I just don't understand the deep, well, I do understand. The deep desire to have a label for yourself is just um, an offshoot of wanting to be good and right, which I talk about at length in my work and in the book. Yes. It's just a deep need to want to separate yourself from others to be like, I'm and a good white person. And to be a certain way, yeah. Yeah, and that focus is about you. And if your justice work is about you, get the fuck out of here. It's not justice work. You're mm. not doing the work from the inside out and having an understanding of how you need to be centering those who have been made most marginalized. You should need to call yourself an ally. You shouldn't need to call yourself anything. Um, connecting with others, supporting others, doing the work that needs to be required to create equity for all, to me, is just being a human. It's just being a connected, integral, authentic, caring, compassionate human. So get over the labels and just do the work. Mm. Just do the work. Why do you need a label at all? So yes, you can't be an ally, but you can act in allyship and you will never do that 24 seven. You will always get it wrong. I talk about this a lot in my work and in the book, like the intention is never perfection. That is a, a system of white supremacist capitalism. None of us are perfect. None of us will do this work perfectly. If you think that you can do this work perfectly, again, get out of here. You're wrong. You won't be able to. And also you're setting yourself up for failure. And again, this is another reason why white women, specifically cis white women, have such a challenging time with this because the systems of oppression that we all live under have set us up to have perfectionism as uh, the standard. And so if you don't think that you can do something well enough, you just won't do it. You won't even try because you can't even withstand within your own system what it means for you to do something imperfectly. And that is major trauma you're carrying and you need mm -hmm. to heal that. That is like above and beyond racial justice, right? So one of the main things I want to say as well is when we're taking on this work, this racial justice work, which to me is fulsomely anti-oppressive, we can't partake in racial justice unless we are um, seeking to dismantle all forms of oppression as they currently exist, which are all to me rooted in white supremacy. Um, it's deeply healing on all levels for all people. This isn't just work that we undertake for Black, Indigenous, and people of color or for Black and Indigenous people of color's healing. We prioritize those who have been made most marginalized um, and their healing and their comfort and their well-being. But we all rise. We all um, gain so much. We all heal when we undertake this work. Mm. Um, this is a question I feel like a lot of white women would ask you, um, and I'm going to go ahead and ask it. <laughs> How do I act in allyship without, I guess, A, centering and B, getting in the way? And I ask that question on behalf of 
all of us listening that we want to get it right out on out on platforms, I guess. Yeah. There's work that we're obviously doing privately that we don't talk about that's happening inside our homes and in our friendship groups. But yeah, so how do how do I act in allyship without making it about me? What advice do you have? Um I would say when you are authentically engaging in the work from the inside out, the shifts that will occur for you will help guide you in that, in finding that answer. Mm. Um, Because when you are engaging in this work from the inside out, everything as you've ever known, it shifts. (laughs) So that the boundaries you have for yourself change, the shit you put up with in your life from friends, from family, from coworkers, from bosses shifts. Um, Your friends probably shift. Um, the work that you do, the way that you show up, everything changes. Everything changes if you are really engaging in this work. That's also part of why it's scary for folks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, especially those who have the most power and privilege because they have some semblance of an understanding that they're going to have to give up some of their power and privilege and they don't want to. Um, but when you really are doing this work from the inside out, this is also why it's so imperative that folks who have the most power and privilege are doing the work from the inside out because the, you come up with your own answers and you don't have to rely on the most marginalized, those who have been made most marginalized, to hold your hand through it. Mm-hmm. Um, so to show up in a way that doesn't center yourself is absolutely context-specific. Um, you will get it wrong. So you do need to release that, like, well, I want to get it right on my platform. I would say if you're, again, if your focus is on how I can I get it right um, you've, you've already lost the battle. It's the wrong yeah. question to be asking. Um, it's showing up. It's showing up. It's knowing that you're going to get it wrong, not an if, but a when and a how. Um, it's having the tools at your disposal to be able to navigate when you get it wrong, to remedy that harm, to address it properly, and to change your behavior, because the only real apology is change behavior, and to mitigate it moving forward. And if you have those tools, and I set them out very clearly in the book, if you have those tools, then you feel more empowered to be able to get out there mm. and do it. Because you're like, okay, I know I'm going to fuck this up. My, 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 my standard for myself and for others is not perfection. Um, and so I know I'm going to get it wrong. And I have done sufficient internal work to be able to withstand the discomfort that will inherently arise from doing this work and from being called in or called out when I do get it wrong. And I will utilize that as an opportunity to grow. I will welcome that as an opportunity to grow because I know I have so much that I need to unlearn and relearn. And that will be a lifelong, um, undertaking. Mm-hmm. So it's like, um, one of the questions I have for you, I think you've already answered, is how will I know I'm doing the work? Like, what are the signs and feelings? And it's, I guess what you're saying, it, it is the failure and the uncomfortability. That's how I'll know. <laughs> yeah, like when you felt yeah. deeply sick, I'm like, that's great. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm not saying I want people to feel <laughs> sick, but I'm like, it's impacting you. You have a, you have an understanding. And, and again, from my spiritual perspective, like you, we hold trauma. This is, yeah, we hold trauma in our bodies. I talk about mm-hmm. this at length in the book. It's also part of why, part of the... Um, importance of this work for black indigenous and people of color like we hold trauma that's our own we hold ancestral and intergenerational trauma in our bodies so it makes complete sense they're gonna have a visceral response in your body when that starts to shift when you start to access parts of yourself that have been shoved down and shoved away and i'm going to say all this in the context of what's also very important and again i'm like a, a, a what do you call it um I keep repeating myself on this, but uh, it's all, I I discuss this at length in the book. We also, very helpful to engage in all this work with a lens of deep, deep and wise compassion because all Mm. of us have been conditioned, live in, have been raised by the same systems of oppression. The impact of that oppression very much differs depending on like the skin sack that you're in and the intersections of identities that you live at, the ways in which you have been made most marginalized or not. But we all live within these systems of oppression that have been made status quo. So what I'm asking people to do, everyone, is to unplug from the matrix. It's really a whole moment. The the invitation is red pill or blue pill. <laughs> um yeah. And um, when you see the world as it really is, when you've, especially again for cis white women, you take off the rose colored glasses, you have a fulsome understanding of like who you really are. Because most cis white women have been taught their whole lives that they're like innocent and um, um, good and mm. really like quite perfect or fragile because that's the Eurocentric ideal of femininity. And we've all been striving towards that standard. And so to be like, 
to be a woman who has caused harm is deeply painful for us. We're supposed to be nurturers. We're supposed to like create space and like be supportive and help others. Um, and again, all of this is under like gender identity binaries and heteropatriarchy and systems of oppression. But we internalize all of that, no matter who you are, we internalize all of that. Um, so we have to be deeply, deeply compassionate with ourselves because it's our individual responsibility to do this work and to change. But we do have to have an understanding of the fact that we were born into these systems. And a lot of this stuff we learned like before we were seven, right? We learned it from very, very young. Statistics show, studies have shown that um, differences in race and oppression, discrimination based on race shows up in kids as young as three. And I can, I have a um, memory from five years old that I share in the book that I talk about from five. I knew mm. that I was being ostracized and treated differently and what that um, did to my way of understanding and how I felt I needed to show up because of it um, is deeply, deeply traumatizing and stays with you. Um, and what I, I need white folks to know is that that also happens for you. It's just in the reverse when it comes to race. It's a privilege because you're white and so you're unaware of it. You're unaware mm. of it. And so I'm asking everyone to be embodied and to really root into awareness um, because it's the only way that we're going to be able to create actual lasting change right like I said we've mm. been doing this work for hundreds of years you live in a country that has yet to make a single treaty with the indigenous folks whose land you live work and play on and fucking stole mm -hmm. um, hundreds of years this has been happening these systems were created based on these systems of oppression um, rooted in oppression, in specifically racial oppression for economic power and privilege. Uh, and yet here we are. Yes, we've made a lot of advancements in many ways and in many ways, nope, not at all. Um, so what's the difference? What needs to happen? And for me, it's like this needs to be an inside out conversation. This needs to be inside out work so that enough of us have done enough inner work to create, get out there and create mass critical collective change. This isn't in any way, shape or form me saying you need to go meditate on a rock and do your own internal work and that's contributing to racial justice. It's not, it's you specifically doing your internal work to address whatever it is needs to be addressed and healed to um, unearth and, and acknowledge and mitigate the harm resulting from systems of oppression as they exist within you and the ways in which you have perpetuated them so that you can mitigate them and get to the work of getting out in the world um, and dismantling the systems of oppression as they currently exist. Mm -hmm. So on awareness, and I know there might not be a neat and tidy summary for this, what should I and other white women be willing to lose through doing this work? Like, what? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I talk about this in my webinars and in my book. Like if you're not, if you are not willing or, um, prepared to lose anything, then you're not, you're not committed to justice. Mm. Um, and I'm saying that to, uh, to folks who, uh, are oppressors to folks who hold identities of dominant, of domination. So white folks, exposed, sick, cis, gender folks, able-bodied folks, wealthy folks, neurotypical folks, um, et cetera. If you're not willing to lose anything, you hold the power and privilege and there, we can't have equity in this world until those who hold all the power and privilege are spending that power and privilege. Mm. So if you're not willing to lose anything, friends, money, time, um, resources, um, your identity as you've known it yeah. to date, if you're not willing to lose any of that, then you're not actually committed to the work. And at the same mm. time, I want to say, um, you also need to be in a space of being willing and able to receive and to gain, not because that's not the reason you undertake the work. Um, but I never want to leave anyone with the impression that like, especially if you hold the most power and privilege, then in order for you to partake in justice, you just have to lose everything. You don't. What you gain is a better sense and understanding of yourself, a deeper connection to yourself and your ability to connect with others. Part of these systems of oppression silo us off from each other. I alluded to this a little bit earlier about individualism. Like individualism is a lie. We need each other. We depend on each other to get to get by. If you leave a baby completely alone, it won't survive. And I don't just mean that physically. Like emotionally, hmm. children who are neglected, like 
don't turn out well. Yeah. <laughs> um, we need each other. And so uh, when we do this work, Folsom Lilo, and we really partake in the inner work, it opens us up to the capacity to have such deeper connections with ourselves and with others. I've had a lot of white women um, tell me that they have never connected to their anger in this way and that I like changed their entire life um, by being able to not um, stifle their anger, to be able to feel embodied in um, their boundaries. Boundary work is so vital to this work of justice. Um, like I said, it's deeply healing for everyone involved. And so, yeah, you have to be willing to lose um, and you have to be willing to gain. And I would say for Black, Indigenous and people of color, we also have to be willing to lose um, this is nuanced, but for example, when I was um, a corporate attorney, so I was working in a very white, very patriarchal, very status quo, like archaic boys club type Mm -hmm. space, office space, right? Like the profession is just, you know, I left for good reason. Mm -hmm. Um, When I worked in that space, I kind of put a mask on every day. And I I obviously never forget that I'm black because I can't, because the world constantly reflects it back to me. But I just kind of like put it in a just tried to put it aside as best I could and just like get by because to constantly be faced with the repercussions and consequences of my blackness and the ways that I was being treated differently because of my blackness was incredibly painful. So black indigenous and people of color have to like wake up to the truth of that, as I alluded to earlier, like the the systems that work against us. That's hard. That's, that can be a tough one to lose. Um, and then again, there will be spaces that you can't enter. I have lost most friends I've had because most of my friends were white because I grew up in mostly white spaces. Um, and when when I embodied um, who I am and the racial dynamics and the power and privilege dyna- dynamics that were at play across these friendships and the ways in which those folks were completely unwilling to do that work or to look at um, themselves and the way and ways in which they caused myself and other Black, Indigenous, and people of color harm, I lost a lot of friends. Mm-hmm. I've lost a lot of opportunities. You know, um, we have to we don't have to do anything, uh, but to engage in this work fulsomely, like there will be a lot of loss. And at the same time, I've gained way more self-respect. The friendships that I have now with folks of all races and ethnicities are a million times more fulfilling, more nourishing, more connected. Um, I sleep better at night, (laughs) um, engaging in this work. Yeah. The healing that I have been able to, um, receive and create and cultivate um has been a total shift for me so uh loss and gain uh, Mm. for all of us i will share that this podcast i do interview a lot of um influences a lot of fashion beauty lifestyle influences and i think that's probably been one of the more um confronting things i've seen is that this understanding that by engaging in the work publicly, they're going to lose their Mm. brand and digital identity and they're going to lose work and clients. And it's really interesting to see the ones who are, you can see they're saying no to particular jobs that other ones are saying yes to. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, so that's been an interesting thing to observe, I guess. And I do talk about it a lot in, I do some personal career and business coaching how much we have to say no to and how much money we leave on the table, you know, and that's, that's real. I, I did want to ask you, actually, you've said before that, um, the impact of our actions matter, not the intention. We've seen Mm -hmm. so many people say I didn't intend it that way. And it wasn't my intention to do X, Y, Z. What would you say to, and I will go back to kind of white influences and celebrities, and we've seen that real fall from grace for white founders, um, female founders of um, what were very celebrated companies, particularly in the States. What would you say to them, to those people who are experiencing cancel culture at its fullest? Because we've seen it happen and we've seen people resign from their roles and cancel their Instagram accounts. Um And so that means that other people are staying silent because they don't want that to happen to them. So what would you say to them? Hmm. So one of the things I say is like to the, to the folks who are uh, a couple of things. One, you have to have a real hard (laughs) um, moment of reflection uh, of who your community is, if you feel like you're going to lose a sufficient amount of them when you start speaking out about justice, mm. 
Who was your community to begin with? Who, who were you calling in? And you need to take accountability for that. Yeah. You know, I just flip it around. People are like, oh, I'm so afraid I'm going to lose this X, Y, Z. And I'm like, well, then who are those people? And do you want you, them following you? you anyway? Do you want them around? Um, one. Two, again, if you're not committed to uh, losing by virtue of spending your power and privilege, then you're not committed to the work. Um, I would also say that it is a power and privilege to be able to choose whether you lose or not. Because that is... Um, something that Black, Indigenous, and people of color do not have. I lose opportunities all the time by virtue of being an outspoken, queer, multiracial Black woman. But I would say that I lose opportunities all the time just by virtue of being Black. All the time. I do and and all Black people do. All Black, Indigenous, and people of color at some point miss opportunities. All people who um, live at most uh, identities that have been made most marginalized miss opportunities. that are just not extended to us because we don't have that power and privilege. So that is, that is your privilege showing Mm. even that you get to choose whether you make this choice or not, whether you embark and engage in this or not. Again, it goes back to why I don't think people are allies. You can act in allyship period. Um, And again, I would say like this, this piece, you need to be willing to give up shit. You need to be willing to lose stuff and, we live in such fear-minded scarcity models. Again, that's like the classic white supremacist, heteropatriarchal capitalist status quo. Um, but when we also think about things, when we think, not also, when we do our best to unplug from that and think about things in a, in a different way from abundance, from like there is enough for all because there is, it's just that certain people, those who have the most power and privilege are hoarding most of it. Um, but there is enough for all of us to live well. Um, when you really allow yourself to be with that, um, then you understand that you may lose a bunch of people, but who are you going to gain? Think about who you mm-hmm. can call in when you're actually engaging in this work and being authentic and true. Yeah. You haven't even thought about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you are just thinking under capitalist models, well, I'm going to lose money. Again, like... <laughs> I'm going to be real talk here for a second Um, to the white people listening, like your money, your wealth privilege isn't yours. It is built off of the enslavement of black people and the theft of indigenous land. You would not have the wealth privilege you currently have had your, you, your ancestors, your ancestors, ancestors not partaken and perpetuated in the system. And you all have, unless you have actively railed against it, then you have benefited from it. So the wealth privilege you have isn't yours. Mm. So it's actually your obligation to be redistributing, period. Yes. Oh, I thank you for that. It's a, it's a real, it's yeah. a real mic drop, but it's like one that folks really, when mm. someone said this to me, a black woman said this to me recently and I was like, ooh, shit. Yeah, that's <laughs> what I felt Fire, but too. true. Like, and that's, that's where I need people to get to. And that's how we need to be positioning this. And like, that's where we need to be thinking about things. Like when we talk about like, quote unquote reparations, it's just like, we can call it whatever we want. It's not yours. That wealth privilege was created um, and built upon systems that allowed for so much extraction and exploitation of black, indigenous and people of color, specifically black people and indigenous people of all races around the world. You have to have a fulsome understanding of the ways in which you are intimately and inherently tied to that, irrespective of where you are. You know, I lived in Sweden for a time um, recently, and I learned that they created, um, I could get this wrong, but I do talk about it in the book. They created, I believe it's like the iron that was used for chains um, to enslave Black people in the transatlantic Mm -hmm. slave trade and and ships. Um, Denmark and Sweden were heavily involved in the transatlantic slave trade, but they'll be the first to be like, you know, everyone just looks at America. Like we had nothing to do with that. Everyone around the world was involved. Mm, Everyone played a role. And or benefits from those systems that created, right? Because the transatlantic slave trade required, um, a creation of quote unquote blackness. Blackness is a lie. Blackness isn't real. Black people come from all over. We are varied in ethnicities, in cultures, right? Like this notion of blackness isn't actually real. Neither is this notion of whiteness, but it is the consequences of the social construction are very real in the worlds that we live in. But blackness, or sorry, whiteness, and I talk about this in the book, broken record, (laughs) whiteness was only created in opposition to the creation of blackness. 
So whiteness is everything that blackness wasn't. And every Mm. white person benefits from the power and privilege attributed to whiteness. And every black person um, is ostracized and oppressed by the characteristics that are attributed to blackness. Mm. I've got, um, I'm just conscious of our time. Um, Do you have time for two more questions? I have time for one more. One more question. Okay. I ask each of my guests a final question, so I'll make it this one. Um, Offline, as you know, exists as an exploration of true self. Who are we without the labels and the social followings and all of that? When you're sitting in your true self, who are you and what comes up for you when I ask that question? I love this question. Um, And I actually was just doing a new moon ritual about this last night and they asked a similar question. Like, who Mm. are you when it's just you? Um, I am my highest self, I think, when I get to be, you know, alone and offline. Mm. is when I can deeply um, tune into um, my true self, which I believe to be my highest self. I am um, a product and part of nature. Mm. Um, And I get to be more intimately connected with that. Um, Again, when we're part of these systems of oppression, and I absolutely believe like online life to be part of systems of oppression, um, it's so easy to feel disconnected and to 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 um, miss the fact that like we are nature. It's not a separate thing yeah. from us. We are it, um, and we were created from stars. We're created from stardust. Like all of the amazing marvels that exist in the universe, of which we know so little, is also us. Mm. So um, that's who I am. I'm a, I'm a soul uh, living in a human body, doing my best. <laughs> it's really hard. <laughs> doing my best. <laughs> um, I am at peace, you know, without the outside stuff. I'm, I'm really, um, I really do my best anyway to be at peace. I'm also um, a steward of the lands that I live upon and um, also a steward of my, all the elements of me. So that includes like my inner child, which I'm getting more tuned into these days, which I believe we all have. And I talk about in the book um, and I'm reconnecting with because uh, she's alive and well, and she has a lot to say. Um, and when I'm offline, when I'm alone, then I get to really tune into her and understand what she needs um, and stop neglecting her, which can result in a lot of harm and violence. So um, I'm my highest self. I would love to truly never be online ever again. Yeah, <laughs> I really would. <laughs> it's a love-hate relationship. Yeah, that's such a beautiful answer, especially that piece around nature, you know, I always say like, look at the tree, like we are the tree, you are the tree. Yeah. <laughs> the chair, yeah. the door. <laughs> yeah, totally. You're and we get so like we, you know, human supremacy is part of systems of white supremacy. Like we think we're better than mm-hmm. all of these things. And I'm like, but they're all made of, we're all made of the same stuff. stuff. Um, yeah. So we need to just be one with it. I mean, I just sound like such a hippie when I say that, but it's, it's true. It's true. It's true. Yeah. A teacher of mine once said that um, we're so lucky that we are consciousness with the ability to mm. interpret and analyze consciousness. Mm. Yeah. But how do we know trees don't? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think they do. I think they're so wise. <laughs> and I, I actually asked my husband the other day, what would you say? What do you think the trees are saying? Because we live in a really remote area um, and we go for walks in the trees a lot. And he's, you know, I was like, what do you think the trees are saying? I think they're like, fuck all y'all humans. You're just fucking this up. (laughs) Oh, well, um, thank you again. Um, This has been a really informative and enriching conversation. And again, just thank you for your time, energy, education, labor. Um, I'm going to link it all up. I know we're all going to get this book. Um, but yeah, I want to thank you for, for being on my podcast. Thank you so much. And I just want to say to anyone who's listening, who feels they're aligned with what we've shared today, um, the book is for you. If you're listening and you feel all kinds of way about what's been shared today, the book is for you. <laughs> <laughs> the book is especially for The you. book is for everyone. <laughs> 
Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Offline. Visit getoffline.co to explore more episodes, the online courses I've created to help you succeed consciously, and upcoming community events. Follow getoffline.co on Instagram and me. My handle is Alison Larson Rice. Lastly, if you know someone who would benefit from hearing these honest conversations, please share offline with them.